Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Mr. Brad Garoon, my burger-loving co-host, how are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Talk to me about some burgers. How are you? I'm good. Uh, burgers. Right. So I went to... Right before it got ridiculously cold this weekend, although this is going up a few weeks from when we recorded, so no one's going to even remember that it was cold. Uh, I went to Wilma Jean in Carroll Gardens. Have you been? I've never even heard of, No, I've not even heard of this place. When you walk in, you see it's a pretty typical west side of Brooklyn spot. Sure. It was, they had such a good burger, my man. It was delicious. Pimento cheese, first of all. Just going to put that out there for your I'm, enjoyment. I'm sold. I'm in. Let's go. I know. Well, I've been. I, I, I'm not going back, but... Um, you can do a single or a double. It's on a Martin's potato roll. The bacon is so crispy and delicious. And I don't know why I just felt like this was the kind of place where I needed to do bacon. And I decided that bacon and pimento is an amazing combination. That's like an umami sodium bomb right there. It was salty as hell. I loved it. The beef was so succulent and so crispy Mm, on the the outside. Mm. It was great. They have... They have tater tots on the menu, and they say that you can add cheese, American cheese, pimento cheese, and or bacon. So I ordered it with pimento cheese and bacon, thinking they would it would be like loaded tots. But they just they pour the pimento over the tots, and then they drape bacon over the top. So you kind of have it's a little bit DIY, but uh, but I loved it. I highly recommend. And they have my favorite uh, hard cider there. This sounds like a multi napkin situation. I I used quite a few napkins. Uh, Bad seed cider is the name of the cider. I feel like I need to give them a shout out. Uh, what about you? Have you had any any good burgers lately? Uh, I had some burgers last week with you, my man. Yo, right. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> sure. I don't know. I don't... Okay, go for it. Let's. I'm curious what you're going to say. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it PC. So Brad and I checked out Salvation Burger, which is uh, April Bloomfield's new spot, which has been much hyped here in the New York City. And we went on opening night, which... Uh, Sometimes can provide the best situation and sometimes does not provide the best situation. We didn't care. And I wanted to go out with Brad and have a burger. And they have two burgers on the menu. And one is a, a double stack with uh, cheese, special sauce, and some pickles, which is pretty simple. And the other one had um, uh, Taleggio cheese, caramelized onions, and it's brushed in beef tallow. Now, both of these burgers, to me, were intensely savory, which made me just want to drink more beer, which I'm kind of okay with. I think you probably are as well. Yeah, I love beer. And they had these weird mini growlers filled with so many different kinds of bells. Yes, it was nice. I was happy about that. My my the only it was really good. Look, they're 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 sourcing. They they have a single source, if I'm correct, from an upstate farm in New York, which they won't say where. They dry age the beef in house, and then it's cooked over a wood fire, and then they add salt and beef tallow. So there, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on, and your mouth is definitely gonna notice every moment of it. My issue with the place was merely the price. I'm with you. I think. Listen, I like a I like the taste of a dry aged beef burger, but I'm to the point where I'm not willing to pay for it anymore. I'm not. I just don't want to pay twenty five dollars to thirty five dollars for a burger. But what I almost find more annoying is that their classic burger is nineteen bucks, and it and, and I thought it was better than the than the dry aged burger. But I I don't know. I just don't I don't feel comfortable paying that much for food. It was good though. It was definitely good. Yeah, or at least at least maybe it should come with fries. I don't know. Listen, I, and I've been saying this for people who ask. It was opening night. There were there were kinks, but the food is definitely good. They know what they're doing. 
Okay. <laughs> I will say this though. On the way back home, I stopped and ate another burger somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, but it's okay because it was the chicken shack and that thing is freaking delicious. <laughs> it was good. It was good. All right. So what's your other subject? So I've been wondering about this and we've talked about this on the podcast a couple of times, but I don't know the next time we're going to have a guest on who can reasonably speak to it. If you go to a restaurant and they give you food for free, they invite you in and and it's reasonably assumed that they're inviting you in because they want you to blog about it or post about it on social. Yeah. You feel compelled to do that, right? To, to, you're saying that if you eat the food, you're compelled to share something on social. Yes. I think so. Yes. So what for the aspiring publicists out there, what is one to do if they invite someone in who takes them up, who says yes to an invitation, takes them up on their offer, eats their food and then doesn't post. Um, you're asking me what advice I would give to a publicist or what I would do in that situation. Yes. I would ask the person that went if they intended on sharing. And if they said no, I would ask, would you mind telling me what the reason was? How do you feel about that? I think that's a good answer. And with that, I think we should talk to AJ from chef sheet about a completely unrelated subject. Oh, you're not going to chime in on that conversation. I, I completely agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. AJ Gilbert has been working in and managing restaurants for two and a half decades now, and he's also the founder and CEO of ChefSheet.com. ChefSheet is software that helps restaurants manage inventory and keep track of purchasing. Where its real power lies is your ability to track the prices you pay for your product and analyze your plate costs. AJ, margins in the restaurant business are about as tight as they can be, and most people don't understand the high, high cost of running a restaurant. When you're nose down in that business, cost savings are a huge part of the profits. How many points from the bottom line do you estimate restaurants lose a year on mismanaged costs? Well, not if we're not just talking about purchasing, but we're talking about labor and and you know everything linen and everything else. I mean, ten. I, I think that I, I well, there's an ideal which assumes that that you could reach a perfect world, which nobody can. But all the things that go wrong. Um, from from theft to not knowing better buying opportunities to uh, you know unused labor potential, boy, anywhere between five and ten percent, depending on how how keen the operators are. And which which of those do you think are the easiest to solve for? Uh, purchasing, um, I, I think that most people will look in labor um, because you can see it and and such. But you know, labor, you're almost by definition, I mean, there's a, there can be wasted labor, but when you start when you start cutting labor, you're taking things away from your guests' experience. Whereas, if you can find a better buying opportunity for the exact same product or a very similar product, the guests' uh, experience isn't changed at all, and you've just saved some money. So, um, so purchasing, I think, is the best opportunity. So, how does Chef Sheet work? How can it help you save money? Well, Chef Sheet does a lot of things. Um, you know, fundamentally, it, it arose from uh, um, a couple of challenges, you know, one of which was the, and, and this this dates back from when I was in my early 20s, and you know, I was managing a restaurant called Lulu in San Francisco, um, and we had three dining rooms, it was a really big place, and a and a big wine list, and all the wines were in French, and you know, once a month you'd have to take inventory of all this stuff, and it wasn't there wasn't a lot of space to store. So you're climbing around and trying to remember if you counted something already, and half the time the stuff you're trying to count wasn't on your clipboard. So you do that till four in the morning, and then 
you'd have to go sit at the computer, um, you know, the next day and type all this stuff in. And heaven forbid, you know, you couldn't read what you've written or something. You'd have to go back and find it and count. But now you're out of the scope of when you should be taking inventory. You know, a day or two later, you really shouldn't be counting anymore. Um, and this, you know, goes through my whole experience in the in the restaurant businesses. You know, that just the process of counting inventory is just a pain. I mean, the more product you have and, and the bigger the menu and the bigger your, your beverage program, the, the more of a pain it's going to be. The more you can take inventory, if you can do it weekly, um, you're going to get much better read on your business. So ChefSheet is a mobile app for counting inventory. You can put your inventory items in and then they display in the mobile app as you move room from room in your restaurant. You presented with what you need to count. You type it in, you're done. You don't have to go back and enter it again if uh, into a spreadsheet or something like that. Um, just moving around your restaurant and counting and you can put things sh uh, sheet to shelf in any order you want. It's very easy to sort and all that stuff. Well, so then once you have all this information in the computer or in, a, in an application like ChefSheet, there's an opportunity to do a lot more with the data than you might be able to do in Excel or just on pen and paper. So we have tons of tools to help you analyze how your prices have changed over time um, and uh, uh, a number of other things. And then underlying all this, and this comes from another experience, so uh, when we, my former business partner and I started opening restaurants together, we'd kind of come up with a group of other guys kind of working together in San Francisco who opened restaurants at the same time. And from time to time, we would trade inventory sheets just to see who was getting a different price for, you know, for salmon or something like that. So ChefSheet has a social network underlying this where you can compare prices with other ChefSheet users for the same product in the area where you're located. So if you're in New York and you click on you know, salmon in your inventory, it'll search anonymously. You don't see the name of the restaurant, but it'll find other occurrences of salmon and show you how much that user is paying and where they're buying it. Great. Well, we're going to get into, I think, a little bit later, a bit more about how you can use that data. But can you, uh, it sounds like Chef Sheet was born out of a lot of personal frustrations that you had uh, in the restaurant business. Can you tell us a bit more about the origin of the system? Well, again, it was, you know, the the finding ways to, to uh, make the process of taking inventory fast enough that it would be done well and you could do it more often. So, you know, very often the people that are counting inventory, um, uh, English might be a second language and, you know, they're counting, um, you know, products like, like wines and liquors and stuff it can be hard to find. Um, and uh, so the data cannot be very good. But again, you know, if you can save, um, you know, two, three hours off of the process of counting a full-service restaurant's inventory, you know, that's that's a lot of time saved, especially if it's in the middle of the night. So that was that's the, you know, the main problem we were trying to solve. So pricing in, in the restaurant business changes quite often from, you know, distributors, manufacturers, et cetera. Can you give the listeners a little bit of insight on why uh, the price of things might change so often? Well, I mean, the, fundamentally food is a commodity and um, you know that the market the the way that the world works is we assume that the commodity markets are you know relatively transparent I, I mean I, I suspect that somebody who trades commodities might disagree but you know things like um, like orange juice futures and these things that are traded on these giant markets people buy and sell at different prices so they're predicting whether the weather for there's going to be a big, you know, if there's a lot of oranges, the price for orange juice will go down. If there's a few, it'll go up and people predict into the future and try and make bets on that. 
if you're a you know a huge buyer like Trader Joe's or or um, or uh, you know Olive Garden or something like that, and you're buying a lot of this product, you're buying it as a commodity. So you understand that when you buy an apple to make uh, apple pie or something like that, that you're you're buying the price of apples. When you're a small restaurant, you're buying product usually from maybe you use one produce distributor or two, but you're basically you're paying the price that they have on the invoice when you receive it. And there's a whole world of information happening outside of that invoice, which is, you know, people buying and selling, um, you know, apples based on what their value will be based on seasonality and stuff like that. So, you know, restaurants are just, you know, they have, it's almost like looking at the world through a, a paper towel tube. I mean, the perspective that you have on these products you're buying that is affected by things that happen all over the world is so limited. You, you just don't have very much information. But, you know, what fundamentally causes the price of products to change is scarcity. So, you know, climate or farmers deciding to buy or grow other things or the citrus freezes in Florida, and these are the things that affect the prices that we pay for the products we buy. So there's a shortage on pork or the citrus is frozen in Florida. How can ChefSheet help you get ahead of these price changes? Well, the first thing that you need to understand, so as you move through the year, whether there's a freeze or whatever, the prices for a lot of the products that you use are going to be changing. And what you do about that, so we, we, we had a very popular dish at a restaurant in San Francisco that was served with green beans. Well, I, let me actually use another example. Um, we had a really popular cocktail that was made with mint and lime, and these are both really volatile items. So again, the citrus can freeze, and I, I don't know exactly what affects the price of mint, but generally what would happen is, is at the end of a, a month or at the end of a week, if we were if we were doing our, our data collection well, um, we would see that, that our prices, our costs for liquor, our costs for food had gone up. So we'd say, boy, we're, we're just not making as much money on, on liquor as we should be right now. What's going on? Then you kind of reverse engineer the problem, and you realize that mint and limes went up a lot. Now you can raise the price of this drink. You can take it off the menu. You can um, change the recipe a little bit. You know, there's things you can do to react to that. But if you waited for your financial statement to tell you there was a problem, that's going to come a week or two after the end of your month. And then by the time you make your adjustment, that's another week. So you've been living with this problem for at least six, seven weeks by the time you're actually doing something about it. And that's money that you've lost, assuming you're going to be able to fix the problem. So the first thing that ChefSheet does is every time you update a price for a system, an item in the system, and there's a lot of ways to do this. So if you buy your produce from produce supplier, you, you can actually just import that price list that they send you, or you can photograph your invoices. ChefSheet will show you that that price has changed. So before your financial statement, before anything else, you can see on it, just by running a, a quick report, you can see all of the items that you buy, how much they were last week, how much they are this week, how much they were last month, how much they are this month. So you know um, before you're seeing it in your financial statements, before you've actually spent the money, you know that, that, that you have some work to do, whether it's to take green beans off the menu or raise the price of a dish with green beans or something. The, you can you can address that problem, or maybe it's to source another supplier, whatever you ultimately need to do to solve that problem. But the first thing that ChefSheet does is it can give you that information, which which if you don't if you don't track the prices of your of the items you're buying at an individual level, you'll never know. 
So most restaurant owners and managers have a to-do list that's like, you know, it's a mile long. They're constantly being pulled in a hundred directions, you know, and because of this, trying out new things usually ends up on the back burner. Yeah. Is the chef sheet system, is it plug and play or does it take a long time to set up? Well, th this is this is our biggest challenge. And, you know, for me coming from the restaurant business and doing this new technology business, you know, um, you know, every every business has its, you know, the, the great thing about technology is the overhead can be really low and stuff like that. The hard thing about technology is 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 getting people to, uh, you know, it's called conversion, to convert, to, to, to go from being, from testing something to actually using it. Um, you know, anytime you have to, uh, you know, Chef Sheet can't know the products that you buy. So the, the I should put this in a more positive way. We have a lot of tools that make it very easy to get set up because the barrier for, for a lot of people starting is that process. So if you have an Excel spreadsheet and you have stuff that you've been counting already, you can import that. Um, it'll take about 30 seconds. All those items will be in the system. If you have an order guide, you can call Cisco or US Foods. You can say, send me my order guide and say, please include the prices because very often they'll, they'll exclude the prices. But uh, they'll send you a list that, that you can import directly into ChefSheet. It'll take just a couple minutes, and all of your items will be there, at least from that vendor. You can do multiple imports to combine different vendors. We now have a system where you can photograph your invoices. Um, and, uh, and so if you have a camera phone, you take pictures of, like, your invoices, and uh, within a couple hours, those items will, will show up as inventory items in ChefSheet. Um, so the the getting your items in is the first is the first step, and you know the investment of time depends on the formatting. So if people are coming from Excel or coming from some sort of system where they have stuff in a computerized format, it can go pretty quick. But for people that are coming from from pen and paper or not having any system at all, there is kind of a barrier because you do have to get all of these items into the into the computer. I really liked the example you gave of the mint drink for a reason why someone might need ChefSheet and how the tool could really help make you make decisions about your menu. But can you share an example of a ChefSheet success story where the software actually did help make a difference for someone, for a client? Sure. I mean, so there's a lot of different things you can do. You know, we, we haven't talked about recipe costing and stuff yet, but just based on the things that we've discussed, um, we have a a group of users in Florida, um, they're taquerias, and um, he, I, I, as far as I can tell, they're kind of from mid-Florida south, but Florida is a relatively populous state, so, you know, like New York or California, it's served by a number of different Cisco's. So what, what he discovered when he imported his uh, Cisco order guides into the system is that they were paying different prices in Central Florida than they were in South Florida for the exact same products. So he, he has the exact same menu throughout the state of Florida and um, he was able to go back to his um, whoever was, you know, he, he, you know, he had a report that showed, you know, I don't know, limes and all the different products he was buying. He could just look at them side by side and, and see that the two different Cisco's were in different cases, charging him, you know, uh, somewhat random prices, and now he has a, a, a agreement with Cisco that his prices will be the same throughout, you know, his uh, his company. Um, we have a, a 
So you can also place your orders through ChefSheet um, to your supplier. We can you can send orders to any supplier, and that with that you can start tracking your purchases. Um, it's just working with a, a we have a supplier in Ohio that that has a number of different accounts with us, and and what they do is they use us to speed up the uh, ordering process so that they can put their they have like a a golf club. It's one of their accounts that has probably 12 different restaurant sorts. You know, the back nine and the club and all this kind of stuff. And they they want every order to come in. They don't want to see four different orders for hot dogs. They want to see a total quantity for hot dogs. And so, using Chef Sheet, uh, the golf club is able to transmit one order to to the supplier and and keep track of of, of how much they're purchasing um, from the supplier without you know uh, a, a dozen different people calling in orders each day. So, just a couple different examples that touch on some of the different functionality. So, I was originally thinking here that this system was great for the restaurant operator that has like you know one or two uh, places but it sounds to me like it works also at the multi-unit level is there a limit to where it doesn't quite perform as well or like who's it ideal for well so the, the limit is really set by the fact that when you when you get up to probably 10 15 units depending on your sales volume there's and you know there's some you're going to have some specific needs, and we've done some customization. We have a, a large, you know, bakery chain in New York that um, we we have done a lot of work with to make it work for their needs, um, and, um, and we have some other kind of larger groups. But you know, if you're a twenty million dollar company, you're probably going to want to bring inventory in with your your specific. POS system, and we integrate with POS, but you're going to have some very specific things you want to do, and you'll be at a point where you, your your business really can support, um, you know, having some kind of enterprise software solution made for you. So the, the the larger groups have had access to this sort of information for a long time. What ChefSheet does for smaller restaurants, for you know, for ten and under, I would say, again, really depending on sales volume, is provides a lot of the tools that that the bigger companies have always had. You know, in kind of a a more standardized workflow than you know, Cheesecake Factory would probably go to a software vendor and say, "This is exactly what we need," and they have a whole IT program that can, department that can kind of dictate their specific needs. So I think that that's the 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 point where you know people start to kind of outgrow ChefSheet is when they get to that sales volume where they can afford to have something made just for them. So let's look at the other end of that. Let's say a restaurant, uh, maybe one location is in need of a tool like ChefSheet but doesn't have any budget for it. What advice would you give to them? Well, you can use ChefSheet for free. Um, I mean, first of all, we're really inexpensive. I, I, um, we're a software as a service model, so there's subscriptions. And it depends on the level of use. If you have an inventory of, of less than about 150 items. You can use ChefSheet for free for counting, and you can submit your orders and track your prices and everything like that. And so, you know, if you're a, a sandwich shop at you know in the bottom of a high-rise building, or you know, if you just want to use ChefSheet to count the wine in your restaurant, or 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 just the beer or something like that, um, that's that's entirely free, and that comes with support and everything. Um, for about $39 a month, you can start counting unlimited and uh, items, and then for about $55 a month, and there's some discounts for purchasing a yearly plan, you can do everything and recipe costing and all the other tools that kind of integrate with 
with your inventory. So it's 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 pretty inexpensive. Um, but again, if if uh, if you're a really small operation, um, and you know I, we see this a lot overseas, and I suspect that um, part of this just has to do with uh, the kind of the volume of sales you see in a lot of like resort communities that are only you know busy for a couple months a year and stuff. But we see a lot of users kind of through Mexico and stuff like that that have um, that are been using the free system for a couple of years, and uh, you know they 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 count their inventory or they'll send their orders in and stuff like that, and it's uh, completely uh, completely available, and we never plan to remove the free plan. So that's really interesting to me that you've got clients, um, you know, all over the place. How did you how did you start getting the word about ChefSheet out there to restaurateurs? Well, it's hard. I mean, you know, so I've marketed restaurants for years, and you know, generally when you're in the restaurant business, you kind of have you know a, a sense of who your clientele is, and you know through free media and all those sorts of, of things you can do, and now social media and stuff, you try and you know target these these individuals and have something compelling to say. Um, you know, restaurant. I, I think restaurant owners and and to some degree chefs tend to engage with the restaurant business as almost a hobby but a lot of people that work in the restaurant business and probably people that work in other industries I'm not that familiar but you know it's kind of a, a, a at work they're engaged and when they're away they're not like you know reading the trades at home and um, you know and reading online uh, blogs about the restaurant business and stuff it's it's their job and they do it when they're there so um, you know, one of the, I mean, obviously we've done a fair amount of, of online advertising. You know, you try and target people when they're discussing, you know, that Google is very good at identifying what people are emailing and then they place those messages. So if it's like you're reminding somebody to, to count inventory, you know, that's a great opportunity to message. Um, if uh, um, somebody's looking for some sort of an inventory solution, you know, you can, you can advertise on that. But the Google ads can be kind of expensive, especially over time. You know, Facebook can be really good. Facebook is very inexpensive. Um, uh, it, it's you know, it's passive. People don't go on Facebook looking for an inventory product, but you can identify their interests and you know, hope that it would be exciting to them. And then, you know, recently we've started um, writing newsletters, um, which are really just about the first kind of. Uh, Inclination was to write newsletters about restaurant inventory, but you realize that it's not a, it's not a very, I mean, there's not a whole many, a lot of places to go with that, and it's not the most compelling part of the restaurant business. So we've been starting to write these kind of newsletters where we, we really try and discuss the restaurant business from the restaurateur's point of view. You know, we did a the most recent one was about Yelp, and you know, talking about some of the the notions that people have about Yelp that may or may not be true and some ways to to use it, why your fake reviews never stay up when you write them on your own restaurant and stuff like that. Um, we're going to do something uh, maybe next about uh, health inspections and, you know, and, and discussing, uh, you know, like restaurants that aren't open for lunch. You know, we're, we're, we're doing some research to try and figure out if they have higher scores because the health inspectors come in, the restaurant's closed, and just kind of discussing some some things that people don't often talk about in the restaurant business that everybody kind of relates to or might know on some level. And then we can distribute those. 
via Facebook and email and stuff, and and that's been really really successful for us. It's, uh, I mean, we we started doing this in November, and it's uh, um, for the for the cost and and for the number of, of new users it's brought, it's been by far the most successful thing we've ever done. AJ, that's how you and I found each other. That's right. That's right. Uh, I read a blog you wrote and uh, reached out to you and said, "Look, I think uh, there's some information we can help each other with here." Um, you know, on your blog, and you just alluded to this, you you publish like a lot of really great marketing material that's aimed at helping restaurant owners and managers uh, learn more about their business. Where do you go to learn about the best practices in, in like restaurant marketing and management, and how do you stay fresh on those techniques? Well, I mean, you know, it's it for me, it's it's just been trial and error um, more than anything. I, I mean, um, I, I think that you know there was some there was when I when I started managing uh, in the so I, I started managing restaurants in the early like in '94 I think was my first kind of real management job, and I was I was mentioning the restaurant Lulu earlier. We were talking about inventory. This was a place that opened during a pretty bad recession, and it was phenomenally successful. I mean, we were, we we couldn't even answer the phones. We we had you know two or three people that would sit upstairs just answering the phones all the time. And just a huge success in San Francisco during during the early '90s, I guess. And it was it was free media. Um, you know, it was it was a great story. It was a family style restaurant, sort of, which had never really been done before. The food was very good. We got great reviews, and I mean, it was just such a buzz around this place. Um, uh, and you know, they never, never, as far as I know, never paid for an ad or anything like that. It was just you know, um, winning awards. You know, Esquire, Chef of the Year, stuff like that, and just kind of. Just kept going and going, and going, and the chef from there, um, a gentleman named Reed Heron, went on to win a James Beard Award, and you know it was uh, that was the key to that that restaurant's marketing success. When we opened our first restaurant, my old partner and I, in 2000 in San Francisco, it was really the same model. We, uh, you know, we 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 hired a great publicist. Um, we just got a ton of free media, and um, you know we are one of the uh, Local kind of what's happening now shows did a whole expose on the restaurant that premiered right after the the finale of Survivor, which was in its first season. It was this you know 20 million people were watching or something, and the restaurant just was phenomenally successful for years. Um, you know, I, I've opened I haven't opened a restaurant for a few years now. I'm about to do it again, and but it's really different now. Um, uh, you know, free media is great and getting press is really important but you know people don't you know if it, it, it used to be if you got a review in the San Francisco Chronicle or the Los Angeles Times or something like that you were going to be busy for six months provided it was a good review um, the last restaurant I opened we got a great review in the LA Times and it kind of we felt it for about a week or so it's just there's so many different points uh, of, of attention now that that the newspapers and stuff don't command um, as much uh, energy as they used to. So I think now it's more about, you know, having a compelling message. You know, if your thing is is that you like to do happy hour and stuff, if that's part of your business, you know, having a, a happy hour or something that is compelling that you can tell people about, then using Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Yelp, and all these different outlets to get that message out. If you're you know, if you're like a farm-to-table restaurant and you're all about food and you don't do any discounts and stuff, you know, you you have to 
you have to you know get good reviews and and get that free media and then almost distribute it yourself kind of show it to people using social media say hey check this out you know we got these great reviews and 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 uh, and really kind of um, distribute it yourself almost um, so I think that the the change has been for me over the last you know five to ten years is that um, is that you can't count on you know the the free media alone you still have to do it and then you have to figure out different ways to kind of get that message out yourself I couldn't agree with that advice anymore <laughs> I was talking to my wife about this again because we're we're about to open a new a new place that the one of the Los Angeles restaurants got this great mention on the Food Network and um, uh, they re-ran that you know probably once a week or whatever for a couple of years and that was huge I don't you know it's not something you, you can you, you can obviously pick I mean I, I'm, I'm sure that every restaurant that Anthony Bourdain visits on his show is going to feel the effects of that visit for two years um, maybe three years a, a, a good amount of time and you know God willing if you can get those sorts of placements but uh, you know that 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 is something to aspire to, I would say, as well. I'll tell you what. I used to own a bar restaurant, and they did an episode of Cake Boss there, and uh, it did not have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> we also didn't have dessert, so maybe that was why. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess that uh, it has to tie in. All right. Well, AJ, before we go to wrap here, um, I, I want to ask two lightning round questions of you that I think only you really would be able to answer. So – over the years, you've worked with a ton of restaurants. You know, you've run your own. You've seen prices on everything. With all that knowledge, are there any items that you would suggest a restaurant just avoid using on their menu due to pricing issues? Fish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a lightning round. I I I know that you can't take that seriously, but uh, uh, be careful with fish. And what what's the reason behind that? Well, I mean, it's just incredibly volatile. I I mean, here here's what I would recommend: is never you can serve anything just never make a signature dish out of something that you're you know that you're not confident if, if you want to make a signature dish like out of pork carnitas or something like that you know or ground beef or you can be you always know that that market's very stable if you're gonna make a signature dish out of um, out of sable fish or something like that you know that probably can swing 20 or 30 percent in a week so your guests are going to come in expecting you to always have this item. It's identified with your restaurant, and either you're going to have to constantly be changing the price, which would probably upset people, or you're just going to take a bath on it, or you're not going to know how much you're paying for it, and you're going to take a bath on it. So, you know, when you design your menu, things like like seafood and and um, you know, kind of the higher cost meat cuts of meat and stuff like that. You know, do you want those to be signature? Maybe you do. Maybe you're a steakhouse, or maybe um, there are things you can do to pull people's attention to things that you know you're going to have a better profit margin on and, and have more control over. Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? I do. I mean, it's, I did. It's not on anymore. But. Have you seen the episode with the sable and uh, caper sandwich? Maybe that's what is that was that his they named the sandwich after him with uh, it had cream cheese on it. Yes, we'll have to link that up in the show notes. <laughs> All right, AJ. So it's been a, re a real pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, some really good insights. Hopefully, some people go check out Chef Sheet and what can do for them. So we're gonna ask you the same questions we ask everybody at the end of the show here. All right. So you're officially now on their spot. 
what is your favorite burger from childhood? Well, we didn't eat a lot of red meat when I was a kid, and, and Burger King opened in the town that I grew up when I was probably about 10, and it was very exciting. So I would have to say a, whatever that was, a Whopper, um, was probably my favorite burger from childhood. And what's the best burger that you've had recently? I know this because it was just recently. Where were we? Um, oh, I'm going to – I'm not going to remember. don't remember where we were. I'm going to say Laurel Tavern. and uh, It wasn't the most recent one. They always have a good burger. It's one of my favorite re restaurants in L.A. Very easy place to go. Uh, Laurel Tavern on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. Brad, am I correct? Have we had that answer here on the show before? I'd have to check our tracker, man. I don't. I don't remember that one. Is, is that? Isn't that what Dan Pashman told us? No, it definitely was not. Okay, never mind. <laughs> um, I have been to Laurel Tavern though, and it is very, very good. Yes. I would say I'll check it out next time I go to L.A., but I really don't like going there. Um, no offense. <laughs> Untaken. In any event. Although, although it was 90 degrees today, what's the temperature there? It's on. It was like 50 something here today. No, oh, that's not bad. It just rained a lot. AJ, why don't you tell everybody where they can learn all about ChefSheet and about you? Sure. Uh, www.chefsheet.com um, uh, is uh, where you can find ChefSheet and links to the Facebook page. I don't have you know, really my own Facebook page or anything. Um, I wish I could promote the restaurant we're going to be opening, but we don't have a name yet. Um, uh, so um, I can't, but uh, it will be at 672 South La Brea near Wilshire in, in Los Angeles. Awesome. Make sure you shoot us uh, uh, an email when you have a name, and we'll, we'll let everybody know about it. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.